0: In December, it was about parental rights. A federal judge in Texas ruled that a grant program designed to provide birth control to kids from low-income families was unconstitutional because that program violated parental rights. The judge wrote, The court finds no compelling governmental interest justifies defendants' disregard of plaintiffs' parental rights in this case. In November, it was about discrimination on the basis of sex. That same federal judge sided with lawyers associated with former Trump advisor Stephen Miller. The judge decided that Obamacare's and Title IX's ruling against discrimination on the basis of sex did not protect LGBTQ plus patients from discrimination, thereby enabling doctors to deny patients gender-affirming care. In 2021, it was about irreparable harm to liberty interests. The same Texas judge blocked the Biden administration from requiring COVID vaccines for Texas hospital and nursing home staff. He cited the Fifth Circuit in asserting a public interest in maintaining the liberty of individuals to make intensely personal decisions according to their own convictions. All of the reasons this judge gave for those rulings sound like arguments that could be made in favor of protecting reproductive rights. But instead, all of these rulings were in favor of conservative interests, and they were all written by Trump-appointed judge Matthew Kasmerick conservatives lawyers have described Kaczmarek as a textualist, a jurist who sticks closely to the text of the law and the Constitution. Kasmerick has ties to the conservative Federalist Society that date back to his law school years when he attended meetings. And now he's a headliner. Between 2015 and last month, Kasmerick spoke at 10 Federalist Society events. Members of his family have painted a picture of him as a man with deep religious convictions, particularly when it comes to pregnancy. When he was a college student at Abilene Christian University, he wrote a column for his school paper endorsing a Republican Party platform that would support fetal personhood. He wrote, the Democratic Party's ability to condone the federally sanctioned eradication of innocent human life is indicative of the moral ambivalence undergirding this party. Perhaps more than any other national institution, the liberal Democratic Party and its ideological affiliates have facilitated the demise of America's Christian heritage. That perspective on the demise of America's Christian heritage is echoed in a 2015 article Casmeric wrote against same-sex marriage. He wrote that the sexual revolution sought public affirmation of the lie that the human person is an autonomous blob of silly putty, unconstrained by nature or biology, and that marriage, sexuality, gender identity, and even the unborn child must yield to the erotic desires of liberated adults. Before becoming a judge in 2019, Matthew Kaczmarek worked on anti-abortion issues as deputy general counsel for the religious liberty law firm First Liberty. That is the man Donald Trump nominated to the federal bench. During his nomination hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Richard Blumenthal asked Kaczmarek about the place religious convictions should have in a courtroom.
1: Do judges ever apply their... Religious convictions in the course of making decisions on the bench,
2: district court judge included? They should not. Do you believe they do? Uh, Senator, in working in the private government and nonprofit sector, I can't recall an instance where I observed a judge uh, imposing their religion, but I will say for the record that it is inappropriate for an Article Three judge to do so.
0: That was the response given by the man who, in the coming days, will decide a case that could upend access to one of the drugs used in medication abortions nationwide. A conservative group called Alliance, Def- Alliance Defending Freedom brought a case against the FDA in November to challenge the agency's approval of the abortion drug mifepristone, an approval that happened more than two decades ago. That group, much like the judge overseeing this case, has an interesting backstory. It's a group founded in the 90s by conservative Christian lawyers. It has a history of failed lawsuits targeting transgender student athletes. Lawyers for the group also argued in favor of criminalizing homosexuality in Supreme Court amicus briefs. That group, on behalf of anti-abortion organizers and doctors, claims that the FDA lacked the authority to approve mifepristone and did not adequately study its safety and efficacy. Alliance Defending Freedom lawyers want Judge Kazmarek to issue a preliminary injunction ordering the FDA to suspend or withdraw its approval of mifepristone. That would, according to some experts, effectively block access to the drug entirely. Today, Kaczmarek held a hearing on this challenge to the FDA's approval of mifepristone. He reportedly began the meeting by enlisting a clerk to say, let us pray, which is a typical occurrence in Kaczmarek's courtroom. And then they were off. The hearing ran a little longer than four hours. The plaintiffs and the defense each had two hours to state their case. The plaintiffs tried to make the case that the drug wasn't properly vetted when it was approved in 2000. Defense attorneys argued that the plaintiffs' complaints were past the statute of limitations since <clears throat> the drug was approved 23 years ago. NBC reporters in the courtroom today say Kazmarek seemed sympathetic to the challenge brought by Alliance Defending Freedom, offering the plaintiffs more windows than the defense to clarify and elaborate on their arguments though he also asked plaintiffs if they could offer another example of a drug with long-standing approval being pulled from the shelves. They said no. In the end, he told lawyers both sides presented strong cases and he would make a decision as soon as possible, but both sides could continue to submit relevant examples of case law in the days and weeks to come. So it might not be long before we know how this judge will rule. His decision could be the end of Mifepristone. It could be a more narrow injunction on its availability. It could be none of the above. But it is a perilous time for women who are concerned about access to reproductive choice. And this is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country in states like Colorado and Georgia and Pennsylvania and Vermont and several others where eliminating access to mifepristone will mean that the percentage of counties with even one abortion provider will drop drastically to less than three percent in some states. That is a huge access problem for people across the United States who might one day need abortion care. And that is what is at stake. Joining us now is Melissa Murray, law professor at New York University and co host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, and Jessica Valenti, writer of the Abortion Everyday Newsletter. Thank you both for being here on this. Well, this day, and what a day it's been. Can you, for people who are still confused, and I'll start with you, Melissa. How it is possible that you can make the argument that a drug that's been in the market for 23 years here, I think almost 30 years in Europe, can possibly
3: be questioned in terms of its safety and efficacy? What is the argument that Alliance Defending Freedom is making? ADF is essentially arguing that the FDA did not take the requisite procedures in approving this drug 20 years ago. Now, of course the defendants here, the FDA, have said, well, you had a lot of time to make that <laughs> yeah. argument. You had some time. And they note that there was a reapproval in 2016 where they actually loosened restrictions on the availability of mifephistone. And that would have been an opportunity for them to make these arguments as well. And they didn't. So that's one aspect of the argument that they're making. They're also arguing that there is an injury to the doctors who are bringing this claim. And ADF is representing these physicians, these pro-life physicians who argue that their patients are harmed through the use of medication and abortion. And they run into kind of a tricky problem because many conservative justices on the Supreme Court for years have said that physicians cannot raise the claims of their patients hmm. in abortion cases, although the court has allowed that to go forward. But it's always over the objections of I, conservative judges. It's usually when those doctors are trying
0: to advocate yes. Yes. that their patients exactly. deserve more choice.
3: So it's interesting here that you know Judge Kaczmarek is not touting what has ordinarily been the conservative party line about standing for physicians, third party standing for physicians to bring these claims on behalf of patients because the patients and the doctors are actually misaligned here. And that's not usually the case, but that's not the only thing wrong here. I mean, why there is a lot, there's a lot here. Why is this case in judge Kassmerich's chambers along with these other hot button issues that he's decided because he's the only judge in this Amarillo, Texas courthouse. So if you file your case on a hot button issue in Amarillo, you are guaranteed to get Judge Kassmerich. And when you're guaranteed to get Judge Kasmeric, you think you know exactly what you're going to get. get. Uh, Jessica, this, you know,
0: I didn't realize that this attempt to kind of unwind access to Mifepristone has been going on for decades. I mean, this first emerged. I mean, when it was first approved, it was controversial. But pro-life, the anti-abortion movement, has been after the FDA approval for almost 20 years now. Is that right?
2: Oh, yeah. They've been after it forever because they know that over half of women who are ending their pregnancies are using abortion medication. They know that it's easy. They know that it's safe and they're terrified by it. And we're seeing like in what happened today, they don't care about science, and it seems like the judge doesn't either.
0: I, 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 what is so shocking about arguing against the safety and efficacy of a medicine that, like when it first comes out, maybe you can make that case. But literally, the argument hasn't changed at all. Why is is it is it Casmiric's ascension to the bench? Is it is why why is this happening now? I mean, be, is it is it Dobbs? Is a catalytic event? Or yeah,
2: it's Dobbs. It's kasmeric They're choosing their moment. They think that they. They think that they have science on their side. Obviously, they don't. Every single statistic that they put forward is false. Every study shows that abortion medication is completely safe. Less than a third of 1% of women who take it have serious complications but they think this is their moment.
0: They're also making, in the in the argument for standing, right, Melissa, they're saying not only is it they're saying there are these complications caused, they're saying women who terminate, effectively, I'm paraphrasing here, you can illuminate this a little bit better than I can, they're saying that women who choose to end their pregnancies are denying the doctors of effectively a patient, uh, a, cli- a client base, if you will, because they can't offer them pregnancy
3: uh, care. So, I mean, they're basically arguing that there is this massive abortion industry. And when these medications are used to end a pregnancy, it's just denying the physicians the opportunity to whether to do it surgically, to do it procedurally. And again, this plays into a lot of the rhetoric that the pro-life movement has used for years. Again, this idea that there is an industry of abortion providers who are preying upon women who are desperate and don't know what their choices are. And instead, they push abortion on them. So, I mean, again, these lawsuits should also be understood as, just as discursive yeah. moments. And this is part of building a rhetoric, a rhetorical record, if you will.
0: What, OK, so how are we reading the behaviors of the like past few days? Right. This whole hearing was kept. <laughs> I just saw that <laughs> facial expression. <laughs> but we, the whole hearing was kept largely was. Merrick wanted nobody to find out that this hearing was happening. The Washington Post effectively leaked news of it. It's four hours. They're in court. And it sounds like he is open to the arguments being made by the ADF. Is it a fait accompli here?
2: There's a reason they chose him. Yeah. Right. There's a reason they chose him. And there's a reason that he he is, you know, saying that this was an accelerated process. He said that at some point today, even though it took the FDA four years to to approve approve the medication. Right. Like, and so I am very nervous. I think everyone sort of expects it to come down on not the pro-choice side. And I think that no matter what the FDA does or the Biden administration does, what the impact looks like on the ground is going to be incredibly, incredibly dangerous for women because of the chaos yeah. that is it's going to sow. Well,
0: so what, okay, so walk me through, if we, he does hand down a preliminary injunction, the Biden administration, the DOJ is going to appeal this, right? And does this
3: go to the Supreme Court, do you think? Well, there are a lot of things that could be done. The FDA could say, you're right, we didn't do this. We didn't do the right protocols. We've got to review this some more, even though it was reviewed for 20 years in Europe before it was approved here in 2000. But yeah, we'll do some review. And that could just be pending. We could be like, and maybe medication abortion would be available in that circumstance because the FDA is pending. But what we ultimately may have is a clash between the agency itself. And this federal judge. And that's harder to say. And it's exactly as Jessica said: in a situation like that, where you have these two very powerful entities clashing, the administrative state and the judiciary on the one hand, what you have is confusion. And doctors won't know yeah, if they exactly. should provide provide it, uh, pharmacists won't know if they should dispense it, and women won't know if it's available. And that's exactly what they want. That's Just the point. a landscape of utter confusion and chaos, which is more effective perhaps, than any ban at this point. Well, and what we showed
0: that—maybe uh, we can pull it back up, that map from the Guttmacher Institute that shows the states that are going to be affected by this chaos, Jessica. And it's not just what you think of as deep red states. It's Colorado. It's Vermont. It's New Hampshire. I mean— Is the expectation that, you know, the chaos will seem less chaotic in states where there is a more progressive attitude towards reproductive choice? Or, I mean, what options are there?
2: I would like to think so, but I am really nervous about what is going to happen on the ground when you're talking about individual doctors who have a lot of reasonable fear, individual pharmacists who were already seeing refuse medication right even before this decision comes down. And so I am really worried. And that's why Every time I talk about this issue in my newsletter, I tell everyone who can get pregnant should have abortion medication in their medicine cabinet. You can get it whether you're pregnant or not. It's called advanced provision. You should have it on hand, whether it's for yourself or for a friend. Hopefully it won't come to that. I really, really do hope that. But that's just the the idea that we're at the stage of
0: the game where people who follow this issue are saying stockpile this medication because you may not be able to get it or someone you love may not be able to get it is a terrifying handmaid's tale dystopia to imagine that America yeah. is in that place. I wonder, Melissa, you know, is there anything the Biden administration should or can be doing at this juncture to urge the FDA not to abide Kasmaric's ruling? I mean, what can the
3: White House do in this? Well, I mean, This was a drug that was reviewed. It was reviewed by the FDA. It was approved by the FDA. And it was done so after 20 years of other testing in Europe. And it has a record here in the United States of 23 years of safe use. And I think the administration can lean on that. I mean, to the extent that there needs to be a new review procedure, well, fine. But we have the evidence. And this, again, is playing with women's lives. Like, this is really all this is. It's a, a, a brinksmanship, a game of brinksmanship with women in the balance. And I will say, you know, there's
0: misoprostol, which is the, the other part of the two drug regimen for medication abortions. Number one, Jessica, mm-hmm. that is not an easier that that drug has side effects. For women, this is like taking misoprost, mifepristone off the market Mm -hmm. will mean that women have to rely
2: on something that is less effective Mm -hmm. and has more side effects. Is that right? It does. It's more uncomfortable, it's more painful. And I think while it is effective, and a lot of doctors are planning on using a misoprostol only protocol, it's more uncomfortable. And the concern is that because multiple doses are needed, once women are feeling uncomfortable and in pain, maybe they won't. Like follow up with that with that second dose and so there's a lot of fear there it's not it's not what is the safest and most effective and we know what is the safest and most effective because we've been doing it for over 20 years do you think that
0: Misoprostol, the, the, again, the second drug is potentially at risk here. I mean, I, a lot of people would say, oh, they couldn't. They would never do that. They would never do that. But this
3: has been on the market for, you know, mif- I don't persons. believe
2: any. They they could never do that.
3: Remember all those people saying Roe will never exactly. be overturned? I mean, exactly. misoprostol has other uses, like and it's essential uses for treating gastric ulcers and things of that nature. But this is a movement that is completely organized and focused on the complete and total abolition of legal abortion in this country. And I think you have to take them at their word. Believe them when they tell you who they are. Melissa Murray and Jessica Valenti, thank you for joining me today. As always, thanks
0: for your wisdom. We have a lot more to get to tonight, including the potential ripple effect. If Judge Kazmarek undoes the FDA approval of one drug that Republicans don't like, what other drugs could be next? And eye-opening reporting from a Georgia special grand jury, plus new testimony today in New York City. All that may spell double trouble for a man named Donald Trump. That is next.
4: Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC, understand more.
0: My role is now for the time being over.
4: I have complied with every request that was asked of me by the district attorney's office so that they could review this case as best as they possibly can. My position is that, at the
0: end of the day, Donald Trump needs to be held accountable for his dirty deeds if, in fact, that's the way that the facts play out. Plain and simple. That was former Trump fixer and attorney Michael Cohen after testifying again before a grand jury in the Manhattan D.A.'s hush money investigation of Donald Trump. This is the second time this week that Mr. Cohen has appeared before that grand jury. Prosecutors also met today via Zoom with Stormy Daniels, the adult film star Trump allegedly paid hush money to prior to the 2016 election in order to cover up an alleged affair. But you heard Michael Cohen say there that his role for the time being is over, which could be an indication that the Manhattan D.A. is wrapping up the grand jury portion of its investigation. If that is indeed the case, it means prosecutors could soon make a decision about whether or not to bring criminal charges against a former president of the United States for the first time ever. That in and of itself would, of course, be historic. But this is the Trump era, and history-making offenses— like, say, impeachments or special counsel investigations, those often come at two for the price of one, which is why we are also watching prosecutors in Georgia who may be close to a decision of their own about whether or not to indict the former president for his scheme to try and overturn Georgia's election results. Today, we got brand new details about the special grand jury in that investigation. According to new reporting in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, jurors in that case were presented with yet another phone call that President Trump placed to a Georgia official to try and overturn the election results. The jurors listened to audio of Trump calling the late Georgia House Speaker David Ralston and asking Ralston to convene a special session of the Georgia legislature to overturn Joe Biden's victory. Ralston rejected Trump's request. According to one juror who described the call to the paper, the speaker basically cut the president off. He said, I will do everything in my power that I think is appropriate. He just basically took the wind out of the sails. Well, thank you, is all the president could say. This is now the third phone call that we know of, in which Donald Trump pressured Georgia officials to try and help him overturn the results of the 2020 election. One unidentified juror also hinted at the idea that we still have more to learn from this investigation, quote, and it's going to, a lot's going to come out sooner or later, and it's going to be massive. It's going to be massive. Joining us now is Michael Moore, former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia and a current partner at the law firm Moore Hall. Moore Hall. Michael, thank you for being here. I am Glad to be with you. very interested in the fact that we now know of a third call that the president himself made to try and somehow overturn the results of the 2020 election we know the call to brad raffensperger the secretary of state we know about the call to francis watson who is the chief elections officer in the secretary of state's office and we now know about a call to the former house speaker david ralston how damning is that evidence as you look at this case
4: well, I'm glad to be with you. I, I do think it's a good piece of evidence. I don't think it's maybe as damning as the calls to Raffensburger and to the other elections officials, but I think it gives you a good picture of Trump's state of mind and his intent As he made those other calls. So, for instance, he calls the speaker and he says, I want you to have a special session and let's, uh, you know, let's get this election fixed or whatever. Well, he's not an elections official that's going to recall the election, but it tells you that he knew there was a problem. And so then when you take that call in conjunction with the call that he made to Raffensperger, it all starts to be as clear as it could be. And that is, you know, he's telling Raffensperger. I need you to just find me this number of votes. I mean, basically, I I think it's an indication that Trump knew uh, he had problems, but he was taking every avenue he could to try to overturn the election in Georgia, including uh, making references about possible criminal problems that Raffensperger may have or talking about these other votes and maybe uh, intimidating someone in, in the role he occupied at the time as president of the United States.
0: When you talk about Trump's state of mind, that seems to be so central to all of the 2020 election malfeasance, if you will. Um, Lindsey Graham, uh, also quoted by one of these jurors, as suggesting that Trump would believe anything about the election. This is the quote. He said that during that time, if somebody had told Trump that aliens came down and stole Trump ballots, Trump would have believed it. Is that— And what does that mean legally, I guess, is my question. Does that suggest that Trump's state of mind was something other than genuinely believing that the 2020 election was stolen?
4: I, I think he had, absolutely knew that he had lost the election. I guess we could say about giving immunity to the aliens to have him <laughs> testify to grand jury. You know, I mean, while we're here, I mean, we're, he knew exactly where he was and, and and what the truth was, and he was being told that by other people. There's there's one side that says, well, maybe he was a candidate who lost a race, and he's doing everything he can to see is there some way to find a, a path to victory. He went way beyond that, and this call to raffensberger has been the DA's clearest. Um, Case, I think uh, that, that she that she has. It's almost like having a taped confession before there's ever a trial, or before there's even an interrogation or an arrest by a police officer. You've got this guy admitting and and, and essentially uh, saying, "Give me this exact number of votes. I got to find out how to do this." Uh, and that's that's going to be the problem for him down the road. It, it's a little unseemly to me to have sort of the grand jurors giving statements and talking about things they heard and all that. I mean, that's not something that we see in Georgia because we don't usually have investigative grand juries uh, or and certainly not special purpose grand juries on a regular basis. Um, but it is giving us some insight into the evidence that's out there.
0: And I want to return to that in a second, the the notion that these jurors are talking to the press. But before I do, just generally speaking, the argument that we usually hear from Team Trump is that he legitimately believed that the election might have been stolen and that therefore excuses him. I know you you sound skeptical of that in this particular case. On hold, do you think that argument has any merit? I mean, do you think anybody's buying that at this point? And do you think that that's a viable path for Trump attorneys to take if he is indicted by, for example, the special counsel?
4: I think any of us would be a fool to try to uh, think rationally about something that an irrational person thinks about, and that would be him. I mean, he still thinks he had the biggest election crowd out there, despite pictures. So who knows what he believes? But the the, the truth at the time was, is that he had been told and he was continuing to to, to run down every path that he could, including what I think was a, a call to put pressure on Raffensburg. And and that's going to be his problem. So it, it's you know if he wants to come forward to say I've had this long state of mind and I, you know that, are, that I've had this long held belief that it was really this and he wants to put up all this evidence you know I just don't think he's going to get very far with that. I think the grand jurors recognize uh, after hearing from this number of witnesses you know sort of what is out there uh, and and I, I just don't think the public and certainly not a jury would would buy off on that. There are other reasons that the case you know, may have some issues or that she may move one way or another. She decides to bring charges. But, uh, you know, whether or not he actually believed it, I think there'll be a a line of witnesses around the courthouse uh, explaining, you know, look, we had told him what the truth was.
0: Um, Michael, I got to ask you, as we talk about one DA's investigation, the New York DA's investigation, Alvin Bragg's investigation here, the fact that Michael Cohen has wrapped up his testimony, um, Does that should we read anything into that, in your opinion? And the fact that Stormy Daniels spoke via Zoom to prosecutors but hasn't testified formally in front of the grand jury. Could that mean this is going to go on? I mean, where do you land when you look at the details we're getting out of that case?
4: You know, I think he's probably close to making a decision. I have some real misgivings about where we are in the cases. I wish these prosecutors would get somewhere in a room together and talk about who has the strongest case and, yes. and who's got the most evidence, who can actually do something, as opposed to worrying about who's going to get to be the, you know, first one at the watering trough. And I, I'm afraid that's where we're at. And we're and and I just didn't, I don't find the case. Uh, very compelling when we start talking about a case that's as old as the New York case over a misdemeanor charge, which they think maybe if they charge it a certain way or have certain evidence added to it, it might become a felony. I just am not sure that's the case that you want to bring first to try to bring a historic case against a former president of the United States. I think we ought to have Jack Smith and Fonnie Willis and, the, and our New York prosecutor friend to get together and to uh, and, and really talk about what they have and who's got the resources and who's got the strength to move the case through. Because a weak case uh, is going to make bad law for those other cases that might be stronger. And so that's got to be something they think about. It's not to say that that's not a crime. It's not to say that he didn't do something wrong. It's not to say that the payments were okay. But it's to say that, you know, we we are talking about uh, uncharted waters here. We're talking about a historical decision that's got to be made. At the same time, these prosecutors have got to be true to their oath and true to their job, and that is to seek justice. Well, you know, there's only so many cases you can bring against somebody. And the idea that maybe they ought to cooperate seems to me to make a lot of sense, to at least have a discussion and maybe they've had that I hope they have I hope they've met somewhere in secret that we don't know about <laughs> I hope it wasn't with the special purpose of grand jury somebody's going to be talking about it you know on a, on a news report but you know I hope that they they have they've really put their heads together to think about you know who's got the best case as we think about who can survive, who can actually get a conviction and who can survive an appeal that's going to take its way unquestionably up to the Supreme Court.
0: Yeah, we are in terra incognito. Very much so. Let's hope everyone's secretly talking to each other. Michael Moore, thank you so much, sir, for your time and expertise on this topic. Really appreciate it.
4: It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: We still have more to come tonight, including what the assault on the FDA over abortion medication might mean for other drugs that people take every day. Plus, not one, but two stories about right-wing figures and yachts and alleged or potential crimes. That is next.
4: Alpha one niner commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console console. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera.
0: This is a 19 million dollar yacht named the Neverland. It sleeps 12 people plus staff. The thing is literally a mansion on water and it has an infinity pool on the top of the yacht in case you can't find a, a place to swim while on this literal boat on the water. Now, a lot of the branding in this ad for the yacht says Namaste, and that's because that was the name of this yacht. The reason the Namaste yacht is now the Neverland yacht is because it changed owners and it changed owners thanks to a deal orchestrated by none other than Republican congressman and serial liar George Santos. Tonight, the New York Times reports that Santos's involvement in the yacht sale is one of about a dozen leads being pursued by the FBI, the U.S. attorney for Brooklyn and the Nassau County D.A. as they look into Mr. Santos's mysterious finances. Congressman Santos denies any wrongdoing, but on its face, this does not look good. Santos brokered the yacht sale between two of his wealthy donors, and Santos has previously bragged to reporters about getting referral fees of anywhere between $200,000 and $400,000 from brokering $20 million yacht sales, which, at worst, begs the criminal question of whether this $19 million yacht sale was designed to inject more money into Santos's campaign than is allowed by campaign finance law, or, at best whether Santos used his campaign to brush shoulders with the elite and, in turn, enrich himself. So that was the first alleged Republican yacht financial crime story today. But there's actually another one. You might remember this $28 million yacht, the Lady May. You're likely to remember it mostly because it is the mega yacht that Trump strategist Steve Bannon was arrested on in 2020. Bannon was arrested on that yacht for allegedly defrauding investors in his We Build the Wall campaign, the one that aimed to crowdsource the building of Trump's wall on the Mexican border. Bannon's business partners in that scheme have all either pleaded guilty or been convicted of siphoning hundreds of thousands of dollars from that campaign. But Bannon himself got off thanks to a pardon from President Trump. Now, it turns out that boat, the yacht that Bannon was arrested on, the Lady May, That yacht itself was also allegedly bought bought with ill-gotten gains by this guy, the owner of that yacht, the fugitive Chinese billionaire Guo Wengui, Wengui. He was arrested this morning on charges that he also defrauded investors in his conservative business. In addition to the yacht, the Justice Department alleges that Guo invest used defraud investors to buy a 50,000 square foot mansion, a three and a half million dollar Ferrari, and not one, but two $36,000 mattresses. Because why not? Why two? If you have been awake at all in the past eight years, you know how influential Steve Bannon has become in the Republican Party. But it's really worth noting how influential this guy, Guo Wengui, has become in conservative politics alongside Steve Bannon. Part of Guo's alleged fraud was convincing people to invest more than $450 million in a media venture of his called GTV, but then pocketing tons of that money himself. Beyond the grift, GTV pushed disinformation about stuff like vaccines and election fraud and QAnon. And pivotally, it spread that disinformation on Spanish and Chinese language social media right here in America. All with well-paid consulting help from Steve Bannon. So Guo and Bannon are also the founders of the anti-Chinese Communist Party lobbying group, the new federal state of China, which, among other things, was one of the official sponsors of CPAC, as in the Conservative Political Action Conference. So lots of Republican figures in the same boat tonight, or boats, the alleged financial crime boat. Turns out it's a lot bigger than we thought. It's kind of a mansion on the water. We have still more ahead tonight, including watching Republicans stumble trying to define their newest four-letter word, one that is spelled W-O-K-E. Plus, first they came for abortion medications. Will COVID vaccines be next? Stay with us. As we speak, the future of the FDA as the highest authority in the country for ensuring the safety, efficacy and security of drugs, that authority is at risk. That is because inside that courtroom in Amarillo, Texas, anti-abortion groups are asking federal judge Matthew Kazmarek to force the FDA to rescind its approval of Mifepristone, a safe and effective abortion medication that has been used in the U.S. for more than 20 years. Now, we don't know how the judge will rule, but this case has already opened the door to two very serious questions. One, what is the role of the courts in reviewing the FDA's approval of drugs? And secondly, what are the implications for other drugs being taken off the market because conservatives find them controversial? In Florida, for example, Governor Ron DeSantis has launched a public health policy committee to counter public recommendations from the FDA and the CDC on covid vaccines. Vaccines that were approved by the FDA have been safely administered to over 269 million Americans and have shown to reduce the spread of COVID and the risk of severe illness and death. In Idaho, Republican lawmakers are going even further. They introduced a bill last month that would criminalize the administration of mRNA vaccines, as in all types of mRNA vaccines, not just those for COVID. And that could include FDA approved drugs with mRNA technology like vaccines for rabies or the flu. And then there are the 97 bills in 27 states that would ban gender-affirming care, and that includes hormone therapy, which, by the way, is also commonly used in menopause. And then, finally, there are Republican efforts to target birth control. In 2021, conservative Republicans in the Missouri legislature tried to block Medicaid funding from going to groups including Planned Parenthood. In the fine print, the lawmakers further targeted specific forms of emergency contraceptives often sold under the name Plan B. It is a medication that was approved by the FDA back in 1999. If a Texas judge sides with conservative groups to block the use of a drug that has been safely used for over 20 years, what is to say that any drug that runs afoul of conservative principles stays safely on the shelf? Joining us now is New York Times columnist and MSNBC contributor Michelle Goldberg. Michelle, it's always good to see you. And I, I don't want to be an alarmist here, right? I don't want to say the sky is falling, but the precedent that this Casmeric case could set, if he does in fact order a preliminary injunction or withdrawal of the FDA's approval of Mifepristone, could be
1: profound across pharmacies across the country. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, besides the impact, the immediate impact on you know, women and people who need abortions. It's just the there's there's a couple pieces. There's the utter lawlessness of it. Right. I mean, I think that the when the Supreme Court refused to um, enjoin Texas from their Abortion Bounty Act, SB8, which, you know, was such a violation of what was constitutional precedent at the time. that, that the, Just to, for
0: those who aren't that familiar, that's the one that effectively criminalizes the act of helping someone seek or get an abortion.
1: Right. And it was such a kind of a blatant end run around Roe, which at the time was law of land. And there was... It was so it the it the legal arguments for it were so outrageous, and the Supreme Court basically said we don't care. Um I think it shocked a lot of people, even pro-choice people who are very cynical about the Supreme Court, thought, well, they can't possibly allow that to stand. But it was really a sign, I think, that kind of all bets are off. You know, that they that these people have been put into these various um courts to do the bidding of the far right, and that's what they're going to do. And the legal arguments are almost irrelevant. And, you know, if they're irrelevant for abortion, I wouldn't be surprised if they were irrelevant if they try to bring up a case against Plan B. I think it's it's also interesting to note that they have been one of the anti-abortion side's arguments uh, in this case before Kasmeric is about um, the Comstock laws, you know, those old laws that used to ban, that were used to ban, um, the contracept- mailing, of- mailing of contraception, the mailing of birth control, just information. You know, they basically want to sort of resurrect the Comstock laws and say that they apply here. And, you know, there's a lot more, there's, there's many things besides abortion pills that the Comstock laws could apply to. Yeah, well,
0: I mean, I think it's coming at this particular moment where the right is emboldened by the Dobbs decision, right? The Casmeric ruling could have a profound effect on how they see the courts as tools to do what they can't do legislatively. And I wonder if you think, I mean, given the zeal that the right has to punish and marginalize members of the LGBTQ community in particular. It, it concerns me when I think about this landscape that, oh, drug therapies that are used specifically in transition or hormone therapy or gender affirming care, that feels like it's right for at least some kind of lawsuit, if not an actual legal success here to get that stuff out of doctor's offices, out of pharmacies where it's helping people
1: who need it. Right. And one of the questions here is whether the um, whether states can just kind of disregard or overrule the FDA. I mean, one of the consequences of Dobbs has just been this total fracturing of the legal landscape where you cross a state border and you're in a totally different legal regime when it comes to your body. And so, yes, well, I think we'll see we're already seeing states banning um, hormone therapy, you know, not just for minors, but for you know, people 18, 20, 21. I think that for the same reason that misoprostol, the second drug in the in the medication abortion regimen, is a little bit safer than mifepristone because it has other uses. It's also used for ulcers. The same, I think, is true of the drugs that are used in tr- That's the insurance, insurance in, that's the insurance policy. Right. That, you know, puberty blockers are given to kids who have premature puberty. That's what they were originally developed for. Um, hormones are used for, you know, aging. Um. For menopausal right. women, right? You know, so whether actually Republicans are going to want to ban um, testosterone when <laughs> presumably some of them—that's uh, the golden use of it. ticket. That's, that's what I think is the question.
0: But it's also reflective of this very, very distressing trend of the courts denying settled science. Right. I mean, I think we can't like the FDA approved this. Th- these drugs, they are safe. They are effective. There are case studies to prove that there is a wide body of evidence. And yet you have these Christian fundamentalist justices who seem to want to throw science away in the name of Christian doctrine?
1: Well, I think it's been a very long history on the far right of creating these alternative institutions, alternative legal institutions, alternative medical institutions, you know, this whole sort of library of lies that, you know, kind of, you know, not just settled science on vaccine-style science on evolution, there's a whole alternative reality that they have been very fastidiously constructing and have now are now in a position to impose on everyone else. It's not just legislatures. It's now the judges themselves. Michelle Goldberg,
0: one of my favorite thinkers and talkers oh, on this topic. So <laughs> thank you for your time, my friend. We will be right back. The word is woke, but what do conservatives think it means?
1: Would you mind defining woke? Because it's come up a couple times, and I just want to make sure we're on the same page.
2: So, I mean, woke is sort of the idea that um, I this is going to be one of those moments that goes viral. I mean, woke is something that's very hard to define, and we've spent an entire chapter defining it. It is sort of the understanding that we need to, re- to- totally reim imagine and we redo society in order to create hierarchies of oppression hard to define redo society
0: something about oppression bethany mandel is a conservative commentator and an author who has studied wokeism and written in her estimation entire chapters on it and yet sure it is tricky So far, the only person to define what woke actually is is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Late last year, his staffers were asked to define woke in court. His communications director defined woke as a slang term for activism, progressive activism. His general counsel added that woke is the belief that there are systemic injustices in American society and the need to address them. Which sounds right, maybe even sort of sensible. Maybe that's why the anti-woke movement has such a hard time with it. Sometimes it's what you don't say that speaks volumes. And that is our show for tonight. We will see you again tomorrow.